Rattlebro, and welcome to this episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 FM, your community radio station. I am your host, Olga Peters, and I have on the phone with me live from Montpelier, contributor and representative <laughs> Emily Kornheiser. Good morning, Emily. Good morning, Olga. <laughs> and we should just let all our listeners know that even though we are broadcasting this at 2 p.m. in the afternoon on Friday, we have pre-recorded it at 7.30 in the morning on Friday. So Emily and I are just getting our days going. Isn't this exciting? It is. The sky is beautiful. I don't think I'll be able to talk about happy hour cocktails today because I'm definitely still in the tea. But yeah. <laughs> It seems like it's going to be a good day. I think uh, coffee and tea is is on the menu for for today. I'm with you on Mm -hmm. that. So you, I'm using the plural you, as in all you lawmakers, this week have been (laughs) very, very busy. Uh, So let's see. um, Some of the big highlights from this week, the Senate and the House have come to an agreement on minimum wage. Paid family leave has passed the House. Um, There's been talk about gun waiting period bills. There's the governor gave his budget address. There's been lots of talk about that. Um, There's Governor Scott has proposed legalizing sports betting and putting that money towards (laughs) uh, child care. (laughs) I don't know. Some reason Uh my brain's not getting that one. Um, So it's been busy, Emily. And we also um, passed a constitutional amendment banning slavery. So it's been a very I totally big week. I missed that one. Ooh, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. So I think that's how the week started. Um, so Tuesday, and we went out of our way to sort of line up the vote for this with Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. We passed um, a constitutional amendment banning slavery. We all constitutional amendments. I think we've talked to listeners about this before, but I'll give a quick overview. Um, Please do. So in order to amend the Vermont Constitution, any amendment needs to start in the Senate. And the Senate drafts that amendment and goes through its regular committee process, brings it to the Senate for a vote. And then when it comes over to the House, we can only vote it up or down. We can't amend it at all. Right. And so then once we vote it up, we approve it, it gets tucked away for the rest of the biennium. And then next biennium, we pick it up again, and it has to be voted on by the Senate and the House again. And then, without any modifications on either side, and then if it passes both bodies, it goes to a referendum vote with the voters on the next um, November election. So will we be voting on it in 2020 or because no no this was just our first round and okay. so next by NEM we will um vote on it again and so it'll come to the voters 2022 okay i don't know why that math is very hard for me at this moment but yes it'll be 2022 when it comes to the voters and that is the same time if it passes in the next biennium um, and that's the same time that Proposition 5 will come to the voters, which is the Reproductive Justice Amendment. Right. And so it's, it's a big, yeah. And for some extra reason, in the, to make it more complicated, perhaps, um, the 
folks who wrote the original constitution said that it's only certain biennium that you can bring a constitutional amendment. So next biennium, we couldn't introduce any new constitutional amendments. We'd have to wait again another two years or something. Okay. I so, guess anyway, it's very complicated want... all to say everything has to get voted on four times before it goes to the people. I, I guess they, they want us to take our constitutional amendments seriously. Which is great. I love it. And I love that it's two biennials, so it's two sort of different bodies that could have different compositions that have to vote on it. I think that really leads to some thoughtfulness. So anyway, we did that um, on Tuesday. And essentially, Vermont was the first state to outlaw slavery, but mm -hmm. there were um, some loopholes, essentially, in the law um, that sort of led to... Um, allowed for indentured servitude and a few other things. And so in some ways, this is symbolic and it's a really important piece of symbolism. Um, and in other ways, it's really like a first step flag in the um, sand about Vermont really taking a stand around racial justice issues. So that felt great. Yeah. You know, and I would say to Emily, um, given that things like uh, there that slavery and other forms still exists in this world, um, whether it's like debt slavery or um, we, he, we hear stories of people coming from overseas and having their passports taken away and being forced to work, um, whether it's in mm -hmm. the sex trafficking. trade, yeah. Yeah, human trafficking. Mm -hmm. I think as, since those things still exist, putting our flag in the sand is very important. And it's a little bit more than symbolic. I agree. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, what's important, though, which I did not realize, is that there's a difference. This is an interesting little twist to me. I don't want to get too deep into this because we have the budget address to talk about. But um, there's a difference between indentured and involuntary servitude. Oh, and so we are banning indentured servitude but involuntary servitude is still something that the state can require. And so involuntary servitude includes prison, the draft, and jury duty. Oh, And I like that jury duty is on that list of three things that the government can um, require you to do in involuntary servitude. So, mm -hmm. That is yeah. interesting. Thank you for that. It is interesting. You're welcome. You're welcome. And so then that same day we had the budget address, but I'm not going to get them into that right now because we're going to talk about that in some depth. Mm -hmm. And then yesterday we voted um, to pass the committee of um, conference committee, the committee of conferences proposal on family medical leave insurance. And so this that was exciting. also very exciting. Yep. Yes. Yes. And that was quite, I don't know, you know, how much people tune in to the um, nuances of all of this stuff, but this is something that we were working on last year, could not really bring the House version and the Senate version into alignment with each other because they were really both built on very different assumptions, hmm. which is difficult. Mm -hmm. And so the conference committee closed, it reopened again this year, they came to a conclusion, and then we voted on it. Again, um, similar to a constitutional amendment, actually, this was a week of no amendments, um, similar to a constitutional amendment, a 
Committee of Conference report, which is essentially the bill that you're then voting on, can also not be amended. You can only vote it up or down. Right. Um, and so just can give a quick summary of the details of what the compromise was. Does that sound helpful? That would be great because some of when you, we spoke with John Walters last week, um, some of those compromises were still up in the air. So I think it'd be great if we talked about those. Okay. So the cost of the program comes out of a payroll tax on com- payroll tax on employees. And so in order to lower the immediate cost to Vermonters, the personal medical leave piece of this is an opt-in program. And we've privatized the administration of the program so we can start sooner. And again, I'll say that these compromises are a huge step backwards for many of us. Um, I think that our communities are better strengthened by strong social programs that are publicly administered. Mm-hmm. Um, because when we take care of our families and their needs, then we all prosper, right? We've talked about that um, yes. and sort of that positive feedback loop so much. But as it stands now, it's also a huge win for families. It includes 12 weeks of paid bonding leave that two members of the family can take separately or together. Mm-hmm. Eight weeks for someone to care for another family member. And for those who opt into the optional program, it's six weeks of personal medical leave or temporary disability insurance. Okay. And yeah. Those are some um, good and so chunks the cost of time. Is, they're really good chunks of time. They are beautiful chunks of time. And one sort of interesting detail that might not occur to people when they think about um, sort of sick time or bonding time is that treatment for mental health and or substance use issues, which are also mental health issues, um, is included in sort of the definition of the kinds of leave that people would take for around sick leave or personal leave. That's good. That's that's uh-huh. really, I think, important, Emily, because, um, you know, I think our, our medical establishment is really good with things like broken bones that tend to heal within a certain amount of time in a certain way. Uh, mental health can can require a more flexible timeline. And so to Absolutely. have that and chunk of time is good. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be taken all in one chunk. It can be broken up. Um, you don't have to take sort of the eight straight weeks at one time. It can be a week here, a week there. And so the cost is, as I said, paid for by payroll tax. It's 0.2% um, for the universal programs with the bonding and the family. So mm-hmm. everyone is going to have it. And then if you opt into the personal leave, it's 0.38%. Okay. Of every dollar. So really like a very small amount per year. And then wage replacement depends on what your salary level is. So if you are below the average wage for Vermonters, which I believe is about $57,000 a year, if you're below that average wage, then you get 90% wage replacement. Mm -hmm. And if you're above that wage, then you get 55% wage replacement. Okay. That's nice to see that folks who are on the lower end of the income spectrum receive a a greater portion of of replacement. Yeah. So in the end, people are going to basically wind up with the same um, weekly reimbursement sort of wherever they are on the pay scale, essentially. I mean, it's going to be much more closer. It's sort of balanced out. Mm -hmm. And so 
that's wonderful. Again, um, there was a lot of compromise and nuance, and some of the advocates that have been fighting really hard for this bill came out against it. Some of them sort of stepped that back and decided to support it in the end when they heard from us about when they heard from Democrats about why we feel like a compromise is appropriate at this time and what we want to do to go back and fight for this next time. And um, some of the members of the Progressive Party and one Democrat um, voted against this bill, saying it was too far a compromise um, and would really we wouldn't ever be able to achieve what we need to achieve for all Vermonters if we sort of accepted this compromise at this time. So it was quite controversial, lots of sort of backroom arguments. Hmm. And um, the Workers' Caucus had a long, um, fairly passionate debate on Wednesday. And in the end, we voted to support the bill, um, as well as voting to come back next year and really push hard to make it stronger. Mm-hmm. So that felt feels great. Um, and was, yeah, I mean, we've been working on this for a really long time. Yeah. When I didn't realize how long it had been since we passed the mandatory um, unpaid leave. Mm-hmm. But that was, I think, more than 15 years ago. And when that happened, there was sort of a promise that the paid leave would come soon. Oh, and wow. so here we are <laughs> with the slow arc of history. Yeah. Yeah. Well, perhaps one of the upshots of passing this now, even though it may not be perfect, is perhaps people need to see it in effect for a year or two. Um, so it's less scary. And then they'll be willing to mm-hmm. take when they start seeing some successes, they will be willing to take bigger steps. That is my hope. That is absolutely my hope. Um, and so then today we're about to pass the minimum wage increase. Um, and again, that's from the committee of conference. All of the hashing out happened last year. The committee of conference met this year, found a compromise between the house and Senate versions. And we're going to vote on that today on the house and then it will be off to the governor. And so what that looks like mm. is 1175 in 2021. So that's next year and 1255 in 2022. And then it stops um, and goes to sort of the increases that are pegged to um, cost of living stuff. Mm-hmm. And so what this is, is actually a slightly faster timeline than in the $15 banner minimum wage bill. Um, and so it's bringing people's pay up faster. It just stops in two years. And I think our hope, I mean, not I think our hope, our hope is that we will have a Democratic governor by then or a progressive governor. And then we can move a lot faster from here. But as the office of the governor sits now, definitely going to veto. We would need 100 votes to override that veto. Do not have 100 votes in the House um, to move forward with an aggressive $15 an hour mm-hmm. wage for a wide variety of reasons that I don't need to get into. But <laughs> really feel like, you know, taking these really important steps now, moving fast over the next two years to bring people's wages up a little bit, and then come back to the table in 2022 and do it again. Yeah. Well, Thank you for for the strides that were made. Um, and I, you can say they're disappointing on air, Olga. It's okay. <laughs> uh, 
you know, I'm, I'm mixed. I'm having mixed emotions right now because on the one hand I do like when I keep looking at all these reports coming out from the state and like the joint fiscal office and other organizations across the state, you know, our wages are really starting to hurt us. The fact that they're so far kind of behind the rest of new England um, and so far behind our cost of living and so I'm disappointed on that level that I wish we we were moving faster on this. At the same time, I'm glad we're moving. So, you know, I'd rather us move little steps than not move at all. So I'm having... Me too. And no, I agree. And it feels ridiculous that we're even talking about the $15 minimum wage because no one can even live on that. And okay. so it's, it's really hard to be in the building and... Um, you know, what the conversations that happen on the floor of the house and often in the public um, caucuses are really um, precious or self-congratulatory. Um, and it is really, I, I know it's important for us to find the wins where we find them and to say like, this is good enough for now. This is the best we can do. We'll come back tomorrow and fight again. I know that's the only way to sustain yourself in this work. Mm -hmm. But the mismatch between what feels like a win inside the building and what I know would be a win for so many Vermonters who are like really it's who can't make it work right now mm -hmm. is so difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I keep coming back to this. I look at the Vermont economy as we are in such a chicken and egg place right now you know we need more money in the economy so businesses can thrive but we one way to do that is to raise wages but that means businesses that may be struggling have to find more money but if there is more money in the economy you know so it's like we seem kind of stuck in so many ways um that that it's like i just we have to start moving something or um, we're really going to get stuck in the bedrock. I agree. And I think that we need to test, you know, a theory of change that sort of, you know, resonant, reminiscent, resonates with, I don't know how to make that word work. And maybe you'll edit it out later before we go on air because I'm just battling now. But um, no, really big, you'll bold solutions. <laughs> Big, bold solutions like the New Deal that can really kickstart, jumpstart, restart what's happening across the country right now. And we can start it in Vermont. And I think that's possible. But we need to, like, really go all in and invest. And given the current makeup of state government, that really doesn't feel possible right now. And so I'm doing some, you know, I'm balancing working hard on these compromises and getting the best I can from them with doing some like long, slow work with the workers caucus to educate my colleagues about sort of the needs of working Vermonters and what union power looks like. I'm doing some work around really getting clear on what legislative intent is with people. And so really trying to have the slow game and the quick and the um, temporary wins simultaneously so that it, so that we can build for a better future because something's got to give mm -hmm. soon. I agree with you. 
And if it's going to give, we'd much rather it gave in a positive direction rather than, you know, the quick descent to the bottom. Yes. Yes. <laughs> no, and I know some days um, I think our communities can feel like that. Yeah. 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 One, one and, long slog. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I don't leave Vermont very often anymore. <laughs> and so I, it's easy for me. That's true for you too, right? Olga? Oh, it is. I hardly get out of Brattleboro anymore. Yeah. Um, well, you go to Newfane for articles sometimes, right? This is true. <laughs> um, and so it's really hard for me to remember that this is happening across America, mm-hmm. um, that we are actually, you know, um, the whole country is struggling in a really profound, um, both material and existential way. And it's not just like the head, you know, the Trumpian headlines in the newspaper, it's the condition on the ground for families and communities. And so that it's not, you know, it's not anything we've particularly done here. It's the larger social forces, but I think it's possible that we do something here to mitigate the harm. Yeah. Yeah. That is, thank you for that. Yeah. And so speaking of not doing very much um, and really working at the margins, we heard the budget address. (laughs) What a lovely segue. Yes. What I have been hearing about this budget address is that um, and, and I'm wondering if your experience is the same, that while the governor did talk about a lot of different aspects of Vermont and its needs, such as child care, such as um, reversing our some of our demographic challenges. Um, he didn't really put funding behind a lot of the words. No, it was actually extraordinary. And so I want to paint a picture a little bit for our listeners um, who might not have ever been to a state of the state or a budget address. Um, it's wonderful. It's if a lot that's of fun, okay. actually. <laughs> it's amazing. And so the House Chamber, which is, you know, a quite old building, and the whole, you know, I really encourage people, if they can, to come visit the State House because it's called the People's House for a reason. All the doors are always unlocked. There's no, there's security who wanders the building, but people are really allowed to stay as long as they want, make it their home while they're there. But all the but and all the chairs are made of velvet and um, everything is in sort of it's has been restored to its original furnishings. And the house chamber is sort of the grandest room. And when we hear from the governor, we do that as a joint assembly. And so the way we sit in the house is um, a sort of U-shaped semicircle of chairs that go around, and we all have these extraordinarily uncomfortable but very pretty red velvet um, little chairs with mm. wooden desks that's in front of us. And we all face um, the podium where the speaker usually is. And then there's a little stage that has a line of much larger, more regal red velvet chairs <laughs> that are actually incredibly comfortable and have these huge ostentatious backrests. They're incredible. And that's where, when we have a joint assembly, all the senators file in as we stand for them ceremonially, and they all sit in those fancy chairs. Oh, um, And we have like a very good like view of their... So 
lords versus the house of commons no wonder you guys don't know oh absolutely <laughs> absolutely yes and we have this very this it's just a little stage they're on and so we have this very good view of their knees <laughs> and then <laughs> sorry <laughs> no it's fine no it's just i really want you know it's the whole thing is just, is extraordinary and then in the back there's a gallery um and a balcony above it where people come to um, anyone can come anytime, but for big occasions, those seats tend to get filled up and reserved. And it's generally the governor's cabinet is, um, fills up the whole balcony. Mm-hmm. And then in the well of the house, which is sort of this empty space in the middle, where the clerk of the house usually sits and um, the legislative pages, who are these middle school students that run around in green jackets carrying notes everywhere, really hope that... I'm painting this picture as charmingly as I'm imagining it. So having said in, in the well the of the house. Yes, you are. Okay, good. And then in the well of the house for a state of the state or another large ceremonial event, um, these just like standard metal holding chairs get lined up. And that's where the biggest dignitaries come. And so those are people that were generally invited by the governor to attend. And that is the whole Supreme court, um, the secretary of state, the auditor, sort of all of the other statewide elected officials sit there, as well as the full Supreme Court, and then um, guests. So generally, the family of the governor sits there. Um, for the state of the state, there was some um, World War II veterans who sat there. And generally, the, ex- the sort of the extra people are symbolic of some larger message he's trying to share. And so that all happens. And then the clerk's table, um, which is a glass table that's right in front of the platform, has, when the House is just in session, the House clerk sits there. But when the Senate joins us, the Senate clerk, the House clerk moves over a seat and the Senate clerk takes the House's, House clerk's seat because the Senate, you know, gets to be on the stage and their clerk is more important than our clerk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then our speaker sits in a velvet chair behind the speaker's podium a special velvet chair, different from the other velvet chairs, while the lieutenant governor, who presides over the Senate, presides over the entire event. Mm-hmm. And right now, that's Lieutenant Government, Governor Zuckerman. Yeah. And so he presides over the whole thing. He does the gaveling and introduces people. And so the first thing he did, does is call on the, senator pro, the Senate pro tem, who appoints um, a committee of people whose job it is to walk out of the chamber and then escort the governor back into the chamber, which adds just like an extra level of pomp and circumstance to the whole thing. It always seems sort of like a random group of people who are sent off. And so six senators and house members are randomly sent off to go get the governor and then they come back in with the governor, who I assume is just standing right outside the door. And he is announced and everyone stands up and claps. And then he shakes hand with, hands with everyone as he walks in while we all claps for a very long time. Unless you're a member of the and press. I you're, have... just, you're not clapping if you're a member of the press, just FYI. Thank you. <laughs> um, and I um, have, was taught, I think in my first or second week of the session about the silent clap which is an amazing new tool that I've really run with in my life. How to clap without making a sound. Really great life skill. 
Yeah, I know. Who knew you and that? I know. I love it, though. <laughs> and my seat in the house chamber is very far forward. Um, I sit very, very close to the um, podium where the speaker or the um, lieutenant governor presides. And so I feel it's especially important and especially self-conscious that I must maintain a pleasant smile throughout all ceremonial events. Oh, the people boy. in the back can sort of slack off a little bit more. So anyway, everyone claps. He comes in. He gets introduced. People clap more. And then we get the whole speech. So now that our listeners can imagine the situation, um, I wanted to now actually just talk about the budget address. Um, do you want to take a quick break before <laughs> we talk about the budget address? Sure. That sounds great. Let's do that. Hear from our, our underwriters. underwriters, sponsors, whatever they're called. Yes. Wonderful. Yes, we shall do that. And meanwhile, listeners, while you listen to our underwriters, uh, take a moment and just imagine the House and the Senate all gathered, poised, waiting for the jewels of wisdom to come from the governor with the governor's address. And we shall return. Welcome back to the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 FM, your community radio station. And because I always forget to do this at the top of the hour, because I assume all our listeners are very intelligent, um, the opinions expressed on this show are Emily's and mine's, and only Emily's and mine's, um, not that that's a word, um, and not that of the radio station. <laughs> So, uh, Representative Emily Kornheiser, walk us through the governor's budget address that he gave on Tuesday. I will do that. And so I'm going to start with some of his big themes and my commentary on his themes and move from there. Because it was, um, the governor is a very functional speech maker, mm -hmm. um, orator, I guess is the word for that. Very functional orator. His speeches often sound um, like lists of things rather yeah. than sort of narrative arcs in the best of circumstances. And a budget address is essentially an address about a list of things. And so finding the story arc within there is certainly challenging. Um, I think for any budget address, but particularly challenging given the style of speeches that the governor makes. Oh, really? See, I thought I, I'm curious to see what you think the narrative is, because I it hit me like slam over the head as soon as I heard it. So and so I'm fascinated. What the governor is what I think our governor is quite good at doing is always walking a perfect middle line. Um, and so what that meant in this speech was acknowledging the challenges that are facing our communities and an acknowledgement that I think is really shared across the political spectrum around the challenges that are mm -hmm. facing our communities. But he tends to use language that resonates with sort of the middle left, actually. Mm -hmm. And then pivoting to either solutions that are so far from what I think would be appropriate, resonant, impactful solutions, or pivoting to 
fabulous functional solutions, but funding them so little as to be absurd and meaningless. Mm -hmm. And so there is this constant pivoting between big, bold problems and little itty big solutions while really weaving in this whole idea around what he calls affordability, um, talked about fiscal discipline, and then also started the speech talking about root causes, Mm -hmm. which is such a huge issue for me. And then at no point throughout the entire speech did he have a single solution that really gets at root causes at all. And Mm -hmm. so that was really like, that was an extra fun element of the whole situation to me. Um, And so, you know, there was a lot of tax cuts um, that were pitched as root cause solutions. There was a lot of little tweaks to the social safety net that were um, pointed as root cause solutions. One of the best examples that I have was, um, he talked about the alarming suicide rate in Vermont, which we have, mm-hmm. and um, two solutions that the Democrats have really been working with on this is a waiting period for buying guns, mm-hmm. um, somewhere between 24 and 48 hours. And there's a huge amount of research that says that that prevents people from taking their own lives. Um, and then really strengthening the mental health system, which are both sort of like, you know, I don't know if I'd call them root cause solutions, but there's certain like midterm solutions. And then the third piece is like growing our economy and our wages is really the best solution for suicide prevention because the level of anxiety and stress in our community is really quite directly related to the strength of, you know, people's economic stability. And we've also seen study after study, article after article about that nationally. And so with all of that context, his solution was like investing a little bit more in our suicide hotline, Hmm. which is not something that like creates, you know, strong communities. Mm -hmm. It's not something that provides long-term support to people. It's not something that prevents the essential suicidal feelings from happening or even really helps people work through them. Right. Um, yeah. And so that was like, like, you know, so hotlines are, you know, not cheap, but they're certainly not like, you know, an investment in a huge scale problem. We have the second highest suicide rate in the country and, um, it's growing. Right. And, and suicide hotlines are the type of thing that you want to have as part of this overall system. But it's actually something that comes very, it's a step that comes very late in the system rather than catching someone early in, in their process. Yes. And so, you know, in the same month where the retreat has been um, really thrown under the bus um, in the media by the administration, we are talking about investing in a suicide hotline. It's just, it's such a profound disconnect um, Mm -hmm. between rhetoric and reality. Yeah. Which I find incredibly frustrating. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) And unfortunately it feels at times um, as much as I, I always feel our governor 
Um, and I, I don't say this to, to poo-poo him. I feel he does have a very good heart and really genuinely wants what's best for Vermont. But unfortunately, as you said, there does seem to be this disconnect between the actions he's willing to take um, and what's happening on the ground. Absolutely. And I don't, you know, I don't think he writes his own speeches either. So, you know, (laughs) um, I'm not sure if, you know, I think a person's responsible for what comes out of their mouth, but the incredible nuance and um, sort of 1984 saying one thing that means something else style of rhetoric, I don't think was um, his exact doing. It's just what he allowed to flow from his mouth. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of talk about, um, costs not growing faster than paychecks. And I think that's, you know, really admirable thing to say. From my perspective, I think that we need to make sure that our paychecks are growing, not that our costs are um, holding steady. Because, you know, it's not working right now. Right. We, he used a lot of government accountability language around results-based budgeting. um, And he used it as an excuse to cut millions of dollars from the Agency of Human Services budget this year hmm. while talking about caring for the most vulnerable as one of his sort of top three talking points that he's used throughout his administration. Mm-hmm. And so that's really concerning given that Vermonters really need those systems of care, you know, more and more every day as we struggle. Um, so he talked about equal opportunities and breaking the cycle of poverty and um, all of these rethinking the way we do things. But the Agency of Human Services has no capacity to rethink how they do things if they have even less budget than they do now. They're already super strapped, um, you know, to do that kind of emergent strategic thinking. Well, and and the irony is if wages... So I have said this before, but in studies I have seen, when you compare us to the rest of New England, our cost of living is pretty much in the middle of the pack, um, middle to high. But it's it's not out. They're not outrageous. We're not the the highest, most expensive state in New England. Yet when you look at our wages, we're almost dead last in New England. Yeah. And so if we are not willing to do something like raise wages, then guess what? We are going to have more people who need services. And Mm -hmm. that's just kind of, you know, the balancing act. Um, It's nobody's fault. It's, It's the balancing act. So, you know, we can't, we can't have one and not the other. I agree completely. (laughs) Um, So along the lines of conversations around um, suicide hotline, he was really um, one of sort of the banner suggestions that brought the applause from the cabinet was um, I think tripling the number of social workers we have at police barracks in -hmm. Vermont Mm-hmm. And so I think that's great. I think we should have social workers on every police department and all the barracks, but tripling the number of social workers at state trooper barracks is like two positions. Mm. 
Interesting. Which is great. I think it's great that we would have all those social workers, but having something be called out in a budget address that's going to cost $150,000 in a multi-million dollar budget is, um, I don't even know what the word is. It's a combination of sort of hubris and nonsense. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're gonna And so unless one. you're really, yeah. And so I was, I was taking very detailed notes during the budget address. Um, and most people don't, which is fine. I'm not even sure why I do. Um, I, it's because you can get the details from the um, press releases. Mm-hmm. But I like to take notes to really um, notice the rhetoric. That's really important to me. And so it's those little things um, that are in the details that everyone says, yay, more police social workers. That's a great progressive move. But realizing that that's a quick fix at the margin and not um, a bold new vision for Vermont. Mm -hmm. So let's see what else happened. Um, On the idea of economic development, which is really important. Yeah. Really, really important. Right. One thing I saw was, um, you know, he, he, he talked about revitalizing county economic centers and mm-hmm. small towns, which um, yeah. I was excited about because that is something we need to worry about in Vermont. Um, and one of the things he highlighted was $3.1 million for um, a, a $3.1 million community investment package, quote unquote, which would put more money into the downtown or village tax credit programs and also Mm. towards housing. Um, But on this theme of need versus investment, that stood out to me because um, I know Brattleboro has taken advantage and a lot of towns in Wyndham County have taken advantage of that downtown um, designation and village center designation. So this is a program, of course, like Brattleboro and and, um, I think Wilmington has taken advantage of it maybe Whitingham, um, and I'm sure others, that these are, are Wyndham County towns could take advantage of, and yet $3.1 million doesn't seem like much to me. It's not very much, and it's actually a tax credit program. And so, one, it's not a very large investment given the scale of the state and how much each individual community might need when you divide that up within... What, 30 communities at the minimum, you know, that you'd want that are sort of large enough that they would have the infrastructure to take advantage of something like this. Um, It's pennies and it's reducing the larger revenue stream that we have to invest in Vermonters equitably, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so the more we have these special funds like... um, you know, the lotter- the um, gambling funds that are going to childcare or the tax credits that are going specifically to this one form of business, the more we do that and sort of parse out our revenue streams into all of these different little quadrants, the more we struggle as a state to think across issue and spend strategically. 
mm-hmm. because everything's already been put into its little boxes. And so all there was a lot of issues like that. Um, there was, you know, small amounts of money around small business support and VITA, um, which is um, the Economic Development Authority. It's slightly like a state bank, but not mm-hmm. really. Um, and so there was those little pieces that were going here and there around those issues, um, but not thinking strategically about what each county or each community might need to really grow their specific economy um, and to give them the tools for that. Mm-hmm. The issue of our hypothetically shrinking um, demographic mm-hmm. came up, um, you know, and continued this theme of, um, you know, people running away from Vermont. <laughs> and which we've seen a lot of evidence isn't true. Um, yes. And we've seen some evidence that is true. And so I just want to, you know, hold but, on to our disbelief around that rhetoric for a little while. But yeah. the solutions, even if we do believe in it, the solutions were again at the margins. So if we think about how people come to Vermont, most people come to Vermont, um, a lot of people come to Vermont as college students and we're not investing in our college system to make it um, sustainable or to help retain those folks when they are looking for their first jobs. And so there's nothing around that at all. Um, When we think about having young families move to Vermont or stay in Vermont. Cause you know, like Vermont in your late twenties is probably like fairly boring and lonely unless you're a certain kind of person, but you know, everyone knows that Vermont's the greatest place to raise a family, except the governor's about to veto this family medical leave bill. And so again, like not thinking about root causes, not thinking strategically about what it means, like why people might actually move here. Lots of ways to get people to like think of moving here, like to relocate money, but like $10,000 isn't going to go very far if like the whole rest of your life is incredibly difficult. Mm -hmm. And so we need to think about like what makes Vermont a great, what makes Vermont a great place to live and be. Um, And for me, that's really like continuing to invest in our social systems and in our environment um, and in our communities. And I'm not seeing those investments in his budget address. And and I also didn't see anything. So when I hear from employers, um, I also didn't see anything to address some of what employers say drives employees away. One of them is, gee, I have no problem hiring people. The problem is their spouses can't find jobs or their partners mm-hmm. can't find jobs. And so that drives people away or um, sure. I had no problem hiring someone, but um, our communities around our, our um, business isn't, aren't strong enough. And so the families don't want to stay. The kids get bored or, or what have you. Um, And so, yeah, I like you, I didn't see anything in, in his demographic concerns that really addressed why people may come, but don't stay. Yes, exactly. Um, And then we've been hearing a lot in committee about the Vermont brand and how powerful that is. Um, And 
a huge part of that is, you know, the landscape. Um, and part of that's the farms and part of that's the climate. Um, and all of the investments that the governor talked about were the kinds of on the margins incentives that only help people who already have available money to spend. Mm. And so we have all like in terms of sort of clean green technology, the early adopters have already adopted. And so we're at a point where sort of, you know, we're already at the next phase of buying around cars and heating systems where this is sort of a viable option for people who are going to spend anyway. Mm-hmm. And so when we put in these incentive systems, we're really just essentially like giving money away to people who don't need it. Right. There's a whole um, sort of set of legal language around tax incentives for businesses um, or sort of cash handouts to businesses called the but for clause. And the idea is that you need to prove that a business wouldn't stay in Vermont or wouldn't grow jobs or wouldn't whatever, but for the money the state is giving them. Which is almost impossible to prove, which is one of the reasons that there's no way to like prove that all those programs actually work. But Mm -hmm. I would really want to use something like the but for clause when we talk about rebates and incentives around um, EVs or um, solar panels or whatever it is, Hmm. and really be clear that people wouldn't buy these technologies, but for the government's incentives, because otherwise we're giving money to someone who doesn't need it for behavior change when it could go to something that was meeting many more people's broader needs. And so that was really frustrating to me. Hmm. Um, He did talk about a clean grid modernization package, which interested me. And I'm looking forward to learning more about what he was thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that brings us to the end of what I gathered from what he was looking for. Um, oh, except for that we would expand our um, lottery and gambling system in order to pay for childcare, which again, like those one-to-one matches are awkward. And then there's also the profound strangeness of um, like, you know, sin taxes being, given to children but (laughs) you know that's government i guess (laughs) so emily we're we're coming near the end of our time i'm curious you know we talk about needing to make more public investment has the state or the joint fiscal office or or have you seen any data that would say how much that public investment would be if we were to invest fully in some of these needs? No, one of the biggest problems with how we're doing the work we're doing and making the decisions that we're making is we are not doing needs-based budgeting. And we talked about that a little bit with Mm -hmm. Stephanie Yu a couple months ago. Um, But we actually have no idea as a state how much money we need to do what we want to do. We generally build our budgets based on what the expected revenue is that's coming in and what the governor recommends, which is usually a cut rather than starting from what would a robust, resilient, 
thriving Vermont look like and working from there to find those revenues. And so there's a few people doing some work to really move us there. Um, the Vermont Interfaith Action, which is a statewide network of um, interfaith leaders, mm-hmm. has been pushing this moral economy idea for a long time and the people's budget. And so I'm hoping that we can make some movement on that long term, because I think until we actually understand the scope of the problems and the scope of the solutions, it's hard to make meaningful change. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about that the other day because, excuse me, I mentioned last week that I I had just read Change the Stories gender uh, pay gap data. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when you look at something like more than 40 percent of households in poverty are led by a single mom. It, yeah. it, it's shocking. And yet there was no data and this. This isn't a criticism. This is a curiosity on my part. There is no data to say, okay, if, if these 40, more than 40% households were earning wages that took them out of poverty, a, what would those wages look like? And B, what would the state then not be spending in services? Oh, I actually think I have seen that data. And so I will go look for it and send it to you, Olga, because I have seen that data. I don't have it on my fingertips right now, but I have seen it. And I'm really taking that report and bringing it to my committee every single day to say, like, hey, people, we have, like, a perfect list of solutions to meet some challenging issues that we've been discussing. Like, why don't we try them out? Um, and so hoping that this minimum wage increase is a good first step on that. Mm-hmm. Well, we are just about out of time. I thank you so much, Emily, for being on the show today after a very crazy week. Um, as always, you can find the happy hour here at 2 p.m. on Friday on WVEW 107.7 FM. And you can find us on SoundCloud, the Vermontitude SoundCloud page, and the Vermontitude Facebook page. Emily, where can people find you if they have questions? EmilyKornheiser.org, Emily Kornheiser on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, as well as eKornheiser at gmail.com or eKornheiser at ledge.state.vt.us. And then I'm at the co-op cafe every Saturday at 11 for my office hours. If anyone wants to talk in person, look forward to that. Thank you very much. Well, everyone have a wonderful weekend and we will see you on the radio next week.